0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. And here in the studio with me in Spokane, Washington, making our remote connection to the main studio in Seattle, Washington, is my pretty bride, Ravinder. Ravinder, say hello to everyone. Share your special insight for the day, and please give us a good word.
1: Well, hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. A good word. Well, according to some of the science, words are very powerful. So the worst word in the world is no, I think. So the best word in the world would be love. So I love you. I love you all. Let's all love each other. Do what we can, I suppose. Um, Back to the radio show itself, now that you've had your good word of love. Um, If you want to learn more about the show, do visit our website. That is Provocative Enlightenment Radio. We have uh, about 15 years of archives there. So during... um all this isolating—that can be a great time for you to catch up, learn some more stuff. It's a lot faster than reading all the books. I'll tell you that much, and I've learned a whole bunch. Um, we also have our Facebook page, so just search for "Provocative Enlightenment Radio." Any important information that the guest gives while we're on the air, such as you know, earls to their side, or any additional information, I will be sure to post up there.
0: And then, you know, and I, I want to add to that uh, KKNW. Uh, as a live streaming. You know, you don't need to go to the archive. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can stream the show live. And in this next year, we're going to take more and more callers as we change up our format just a little bit. So it would be a good idea for all of you that enjoy our show to load up that streaming um, application. App. Mm-hmm. And be ready to just join us. You can call in from anywhere in the world just as well as you could if you lived right in Seattle. You have anything else you want to add to that, Rev?
1: No, I think that's great. Yeah, just get the app for KKNW. You just find it KKNW. in the
0: KKNW. App Store. KKNW.com. I mean, you just search KKNW, at Seattle. Um, you'll find several links there, including the stream link, and download that, that application. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I want to discuss the power of myth. A myth, according to Webster, is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. Now think about that for a minute. How many myths and I'll put the word again in quotation marks, still lurk in our psyche. And are they all really only myths? If you're a religious person, no doubt you have your story, and it includes a seeming supernatural being. For example, the myth of Parthenogenesis is fairly common. Buddha's mother conceived Buddha when the trunk of a white elephant touched her. Jesus was born to a virgin, albeit modern scholars now translate the ancient language to mean young maiden. Indeed, the Pharaoh roman god, Addis was born of a virgin, Nana, on December 25th. And the list goes on. It's not just religion, though, where we find virgin birth. Romulus and Remus were born of the virgin Rhea Silvia, the earth mother of the Aztecs. Coltlacut found a ball of feathers that fell from the sky and became pregnant when she placed it in her waistband. And according to Chinese myth, Qi was miraculously conceived when his mother Yang Yun stepped in a giant footprint left by the supreme deity Xingdei. Is virgin birth possible? Well, according to a BBC report, it not only is, it's common. Thelma, a 20-foot python that spent four years alone in a Louisville zoo in the U.S. without ever having met a male of her species, somehow laid over 61 eggs, producing six healthy babies. Quoting the BBC report, Scientists are discovering that virgin births occur in many different species, amphibians, reptiles, cartil- cartilaginous, and bony fish and birds. And it happens for reasons we don't quite understand. That said, the fact remains there are no records of genuine human or mammal, for that matter, virgin births. Should we accept the myth? as fact, that of virgin birth, or is it designed to suggest something else? The late Joseph Campbell suggested that dismissing myth without examination is something we should never contemplate. For Campbell the element he referred to as monomyth was crucial to understanding any myth. Campbell's concept of monomyth, one myth, refers to the theory that sees all mythic narratives as variations of a single great story. The theory is based on the observation that a common pattern exists beneath the narrative elements of most great myths, regardless of their origin or time of creation. In Campbell's mind, every myth is psychologically symbolic, a metaphor for example the myth of heroes always contains similar situations actions trials tribulations and so forth all of which the hero ultimately overcomes so what are we to learn from this do they still have an intelligent place in our lives or are they more like marvel characters moreover what can we learn from them? The answer, in my view, is an unabated yes. They still have an intelligent place and they still identify the universality of human experience across time and culture. Bottom line, there is much to learn from our myths. Our myths are not only there to inform us about our conscious notions, but about our unconscious desires and perceived needs. Taking the time to think about the myths we live with, those we believe and those we may disbelieve, but are yet attracted to, will tell us much about ourselves. Those are my thoughts, as always, I welcome yours. What about you, Ravinder, what are your thoughts? You know, there's a
1: great deal of food for thought there. I think I always say that, food for thought. Um, have to come up with something more original. You know, the mythology behind stuff, you know, you, I mean, you're totally correct. In lots of religions, they always build up the founder to be some supernatural being. It happens time and time again. And you actually give a great account of that in your book. What does that mean? Where you go through Christmas and all the other cultures that have a similar type of story. And it's pretty incredible. But when I started doing my own research into the Sikh faith, because I was brought up Sikh, for those who don't know that, um, I found similar stuff there as well. Some of the stories um, are just repeated. You know, you can find origins in other places, but it's as though people have a... They actually require something magical in the teachers that they're going to follow. Um, and then you talk about, you know, with myths in general, I would say, you know, don't myths all urge us to reach higher. Is that some other way that, um, that yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think of a better way to say that, you know, to reach higher, to believe in something more, because the fact is we are all attracted to myths pretty constantly. Um, I'm actually working on a fiction book right now, so I'm doing lots of different courses um, on writing fiction and what it requires. And the hero's journey is a really common theme. The hero starts off flawed, has to beat his own demons, and or, or she, and my book's definitely a she. Um, they have to beat their own demons. They have to go through obstacles in order to be triumphant so even though you talk about myths as being really old the same hero's journey is in everything we watch on tv all the movies they all have that that same element and so is there something in our psyche that is constantly reminding us we can do better
0: well i am you know obviously there is something in our psyche that's why we're attracted to these things why we like them but you know there are there are myths that it's one thing to think about a myth like the the story of a hero, but there are great myths of the female and there are great myths of the male. And there's a good good way to think about a myth sometime is to think about the archetypes that are suggested in those myths. But we have a great guest that uh we'll we'll talk about the power of myth today, in particular um his book, which I found extremely fascinating. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Richard Rowland, and we spoke about his new book, Beyond the Veil. Nita wrote, thank you for such an inspiring show. Aaron wrote, Dr. Taylor, I am not vegetarian, but after your show, I'll rethink that. There's a lot of meat, pun intended, to what you and your guest had to say. <laughs> I like that. Moving on, Jason wrote, I recently ordered several of your talk CDs and have used them daily since I received them. I am truly impressed and have already noticed a change in my attitude and mental state. Maria wrote, Oh gosh, Elton, I owe you so much to your books, your CDs, your inspiration. You have helped me get to this age intact and flourishing. I hope you feel my gratitude it is like a Borealis. Well, wow! thank you, Maria. I'm deeply honored by your words, and will do my best to live up to them. And Tom wrote, Eldon, I pass along your mindful dialectical, thought-provoking insight to my friends in public posts. I'm so grateful for stretching the bell curve that social exclusion narrows. Do we stretch the bell curve?
1: I think you get all of us to think more. We do.
0: All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N at com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, Scavengers of Beauty with Philip Sabu. I'm going to tell you, this is a great read. It's a fun read. Um, it, it it is an extremely interesting perspective. I would recommend it to all of you. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Philip is a trustee and a writer for the Gaia Foundation, an international London-based NGO, which has been working for 35 years with indigenous people to uphold earth-centered perspectives. He co-runs, and I'm not sure I'm going to say this one correctly, but Umunta microfinance, I'll ask him about that, an NGO that he set up in 2010 to provide small-scale loans to disadvantaged women in Malawi, currently 1,000 clients. He holds an MA in myth, cosmology, and the sacred, with distinction from Canterbury Christ Church University, and has been a dedicated student of astrology for many solar returns. All right. On that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Philip Siebold.
2: Hello, well done.
0: Uh, nice how to, do you, nice uh, to be on your show. How do you say that? You're uh, the uh, the school or the the Umanthu microfinance? Is that what it is, Mr. Sabu? It's,
2: it's umuntu. Uh, it's it's a um, word from the local language, Chichewa. From the um, from Umuntu.
0: Okay, well, uh, Umuntu. All right. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't know why it matters. I, m- I may never say it again, but it does matter. <laughs> Umuntu. All right, Mister Cebu. We like to learn three things from our guests on this show: what is the message, who is the messenger, and of course, how do we use the information? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate
2: about and why. Well, you know I think for for me right, what really interests me or puzzles me in a sense is the place of um, of of humanity uh in on the earth and how how we can live in harmony with the earth uh, and with the cosmos in general i suppose but 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 more about how can we develop a peaceful respectful relation that is mutually beneficial between Earth, and what I mean by Earth is the whole ecosystem of, of Earth, obviously, and us humans. That's really what, is, uh, what I find utterly fascinating and, uh, and puzzling, too. And that's what the book is, is, is about as well. Uh, it's, it's trying to come up with different angles into that, into that question. I
0: think you did a good job examining that, at least from the perspective of the angle that you approach. You heard today's spotlight, uh, Philip. Uh, what have I got
2: wrong, and/or what would you add? Well, I, I, I thought it was um, it was a wonderful uh, a wonderful presentation of the beautiful complexity of myth. Uh, what I would add is that today. In our, in our culture, a myth is deemed um, a wrong, a false story. Because myth in, in Greek means story. And today we understand myth as being um, uh, false, as, as being not true. While before, uh, and by that I mean in, in ancient cultures and among indigenous people, a myth was a true story and and as joseph campbell whom you mentioned um, who spent so much of his life dedicated to uh, to understanding myth uh, uh campbell pointed out that myth really uh fulfilled four different functions among them a cosmological function but also a social and a personal um, function and therefore individuals in a given society through myth were connected not only to their uh, fellow human beings, but to the wider world at large, and to the and to the cosmos, they had basically it gave them meaning. And as Campbell said, and Jung as well um, uh, mentioned that uh, we in our culture have lost this collective myth that binds us together.
0: You know, there are myths about heroes, and there are myths about villains. And we look into the world, and and in our lifetime, yours and mine, and there are leaders that myths have already begun to develop. Gandhi is a case in point. For that matter, Hitler. Uh, Why is it, do you think, that we build stories out of these icons?
2: Because we need stories, I think, we desperately need stories, actually. Um, of course, for a long time, uh, at least in our, in our Western culture, Christianity was providing the main myth in the sense of the main story, and people were relating to that and could find uh, their place through that particular story, a story that we have kind of lost in the main and of course there are still many Christians in the world but as a collective story we have lost lost that and nothing has really come up to replace it. So I think we are desperate for we are desperate for a collective story. Any story really and we fill the gaps with
0: Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off please proceed.
2: No I was just saying we fill the gaps with with those uh, stories that you mentioned, about, in particular about individuals uh, who, who have this archetypal quality, like Gandhi, for instance, um, and can be beacons for us.
0: Would you agree with me if I suggested that myth provides a way that we relate to the world, to our culture, uh, and to these individuals?
2: Yeah, I would I would totally agree. I think I think a myth is exactly um, a way to uh, to connect to connect to our fellow human beings, to connect to Earth, and to connect to the to the cosmos. It gives us it gives a place, it gives meaning, and that's I think what we desperately need collectively.
0: Let me ask you this: many who study myth find that. Not only are there archetypes involved, but that grasping their meaning is more of what so-called right brain skill than that left brain intellectual linear endeavor. Um, Mm. I I don't personally think that's uh, true. What would you say about that notion?
2: Well, to me, actually, myths are really um, involving both, both sides of the brain, if we want to put it that way. Um, for instance, if I look at Australia and the aborigines in, in, Australia with the, the dream songs, you know, and, and how the, the, the aborigines relate to their surrounding with, with the landscape, with actual landmarks and, 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 this particular rock and this particular place, it's, it's a very, it's a very logical way to look at the landscape. There, there are, there are lines you, you, fo- you follow follow those lines and, and those paths and at the same time there is the, the right brain with, with the, the whole uh, mythology behind those places so I don't know for me myths are really involving or at the intersection of, of left left and right gotcha
0: alright before we launch into your book um, I play devil's advocate uh, on every show uh, to keep everything honest one of the criticisms about it suggests that it's more a work about your own life than about the subject that the title of the book suggests. What do you say
2: to that criticism? Uh, I say um, it is indeed also about my own life, which I try to look at um, in a m- mythical way, almost. Um but what I've been really been trying to do is to, to mix the personal narrative with the much wider collective one. So yes, it is about my own life, but it's not only about my own life. In fact, my own life is, is but a shadow of the much bigger narrative of the moon landing.
0: If for what it's worth, I don't think it's possible to write a good book and not have yourself involved in that book which tells us something about whoever the writer is, period, in a quotation. All right. Last question before we jump full scale into the book itself. Why does the examination of the myth about the moon landing matter at all to us today, or does it?
2: Um, Well, of course, personally, I think it does not everybody is going to agree with me, which is fair enough. Um, I think when we look at the 20th century, arguably this event of the moon landing could be seen as the main main achievement of the century. It's the first time we left the planet and and visited a foreign body. Whatever happens to the rest of our story and, the, and and how humanity is going to evolve in the future, it has to be a huge stepping stone and yes of course we can only look at this event uh, as a technological scientific achievement which which it is of course but I think it's uh, it's uh, it's also interesting to try and 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 find this, the symbolic meaning of it as well um and this is what I've been trying to trying to do, really.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I find it very interesting. We once entertained uh, on the show uh, a, a NASA expert who mm. talked about, you know, all of the things that came out of that moon landing. So you think about. Well, the greatest, most important things that may have happened in the 20th century. And somebody might say, oh, computers. We got computers. We had silicone chips. Everything became digital. We da-da-da-da-da. But Mm -hmm. all of those things were advances as a result of the efforts to put people on the moon. All right. Mm -hmm. We have a hard break coming up, sir. Uh, After the break, we'll get directly into your book. Uh, We're speaking with Philip Sabu. About his work and book, *Scavengers of Beauty*. As I said at the top of the introduction, this is a great read. You'll learn more about it the next half of our show. I suggest you all check it out. You can learn more about our guest and his books by emailing him at *Scavengers of Beauty* at gmail.com. *Scavengers of Beauty*, one word at gmail.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote... I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it, until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Philip Sabu about his work and book Scavengers of Beauty. You can learn more about our guest and his books by emailing him at Scavengers of Beauty one word scavengers of beauty at gmail.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a hobby of mine and a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including creativity, personality, social behavior, and intelligence. Now, your chosen music, Philip, is David Bowie's Space Oddity." So please yeah. tell us, why, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are?
2: Well I was born in the 60s, you know, mid 60s and I grew up with all the icons of rock and pop I suppose and David Bowie definitely was was one and of course the theme of the of of Bowie's song that you played is directly related to um, to space travel which has always been a very uh, a keen uh, keen passion of mine um and I suppose there is a bit of nostalgia in it because this song is uh, is from 71 or two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that just takes me back a long time ago. Interesting.
0: Let me ask you this. Let's go directly to your book. Why was the mission to the moon named after the god of the sun and not after a moon goddess?
2: Yeah, it's... You know, it's, it's for some reason, this question has been with me for, for many years. And all along, I've always thought that it was quite a silly question, in a sense. And I was absolutely convinced that many people had uh, noticed that, indeed, it was a bit, uh, maybe a bit uh, strange or unusual to call a mission to the moon after the god of the sun, and then I realized one day doing some research that actually there was not much, if anything at all, written about the subject. So I, you know, I kind of delved into it. Into it, and um, immediately when you start to look at, uh, at 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 the question in this way, you open the door to an amazing landscape, and that landscape is sun and moon mythologies, and the more you research, the more you realize that humanity really has grown with, with sun and moon mythologies all along. And to me, it's, it's, it was absolutely fascinating. And I looked basically, I tried to draw a painting, if you want, of the evolution of consciousness through the prism through the angles of, of sun and Moon mythologies and symbolism. Uh, and that's really what the book is about, is, is looking, um, looking at, the, at the Apollo mission to the Moon and, and looking back in time, way back in time, and looking at how humanity really uh, evolved in a sense, in a sense, with, uh, through, through sun and Moon mythologies and, and symbolism.
0: It it occurred to me reading your book, and just just you know, off the cuff kind of thoughts that you had, as you, or I had, as I as I thought about mm, the material. The Moon Goddess. Mm, we're we're going to land on the Moon Goddess. We're going to penetrate the Moon Goddess. We're going to, oh, conquer the Moon Goddess. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the journey is going to be, you know. Uh, a manly—it's going to take courage. It, it, it's going to be almost like the knights of the Round Table on mm. a conquest uh, that is filled with with potential dangers, and, and it's going to be this great quest. Um, and and you don't you don't conquer a female. And all these thoughts occurred to me. Do you think? that there was a conscious decision made about changing the reference to the moon, making this um, the sun god, the god of the sun, I should say, as opposed to looking at it
2: uh, in the female aspect? Well, what I've been really looking at is how... um... Our perception of the moon has been changing over the millennia, really. I'm, I'm really looking at, at way back in time, 20, 25,000 years ago, at which time it can be argued quite convincingly that the moon was the main object in the in the sky. It was it was a fascinating object because we could see these changes obviously day after day, endless changes within a. Um, a perennial cycle and Certainly for the ancients at, at that time it must have been utterly fascinating to see this this body in the sky changing shape and when we Look at the works of art of that period in particular the the, the sculpture the small sculptures um, a lot of them have Our uh, first of all are usually female representations and have moon symbolism attached to that so um, that's my starting point. Uh, and, you know, I want to emphasize <clears throat> immediately that my take is <clears throat> symbolic, but it's also poetic in a sense. So I really look, and I'm not pretending to come up with a hard-nosed truth. It's one way to look at things. And the way I, I look at, at that is that the moon at the time was the main object in the sky and was obviously revered. And little by little, uh, she was superseded by by the sun. And the shift really happened about four to 6,000 years ago, when the sun then became the main object in the sky. So what I'm arguing is that the moon has gradually been demoted. And while 20,000 years ago was the main object, beautiful object in the, in the sky, revered as a as a goddess and and was revered as a goddess for for many, many uh, millennia after that, but gradually was demoted, was then superseded by the sun. And then during scientific revolution, uh, the moon just became a lump of rock uh, without any particular um, shine to it. And what I'm arguing is that this process of demotion of the moon actually uh, ended on July 20, 1969, when we physically landed on the moon, and as Buzz Aldrin, the second in command, in um, uh, the deputy to uh, to Neil Armstrong, fa- famously said when he stepped on the moon, his his words were magnificent desolation. So that's what the moon had come to. Uh, to represent for us from this beautiful object in the sky, so mysterious, it became desolation and almost real estate if, if we go one, one step further, so that's my uh, that's my take on the on, on the subject um, okay and, so
0: yeah. let me see if I've got this right initially, as you say, the moon is the primary um, and this goes back many, many thousands of years ago, but it's the primary yeah, today we you know we look at the moon and we think of it as just this dead rock uh, that grows at night only because of the sun. Yes. Uh, so it's a reflection of the sun. yeah, and the the landing on the moon, I think you basically refer to it as, symbolizing the triumph of Apolloninian consciousness, the rationality, science, and technology has overcome all these old myths of the moon. Have I got that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, so the symbolism of the mission shows the prevailing sun imagery. Why does that matter?
2: Well, I I think it matters when... um when you look at it the way I have, which is basically trying to look at sun and moon symbolism and the evolution of the two bodies uh, relative to one another. So as I said, about 5,000 years ago, say, more or less, uh, the sun became the main object in the sky. And with it, of course, uh, I I introduced the notion of of male-female polarity. the moon in our culture mostly is associated to feminine values and, and to the feminine while the sun is associated to the masculine. So what we have seen at the time 5,000 years ago is the earth or moon goddesses uh, were replaced by sky gods, masculine sky gods uh, in Greece. It was Zeus for instance and became Jupiter in, in Roman times um, and the sun uh, from that point on carried the values of perfection of excellence. Apollo who was the god of the sun for the for the Greeks and for the Romans, came to carry these values as well of absolute perfection of of um, and, and later on of scientific excellence, professionalism uh, clarity of vision detachment these are the values that Apollo and the sun have been carrying for us. And therefore, there was quite, um, it was quite logical for NASA to uh, name the mission after the god of the sun because Apollo carried the values that were necessary for the mission to be successful. So symbolically, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Philip, if, <clears throat> if myth and life
0: follow one another, we see in in just this much of what you've uh, expressed that the female, the moon, has been subordinated by the male, the sun. Mm -hmm. And yet in life, in this past hundred years uh, or more, uh, we have seen a great rise among females in terms of their social power. Are mm-hmm. you suggesting that one undercuts the other or they run contrary to one another or is this something you've you've examined?
2: Well, I think at, at this point it's important to uh, highlight that what I've been trying to do is not to conflate gender and archetype. So when I talk about the feminine the moon the feminine and the sun slash masculine I don't necessar- necessarily talk about woman and man What I'm talking about is that for the last say 2 3000 years we have our culture has been dominated by the sun so we are in what I call solar consciousness which carries masculine values um, but, of course, these masculine values can be carried by women as well. So what I'm arguing is that um, we have been suffering from an excess of sun, and this excess of sun of solar consciousness uh, is shown in the in the moon landing uh, by and and the moon conquest by Apollo, the sun. Um, so that's really what i've been I've been trying to to highlight. Uh, now, yes, of course, in the last hundred years, we've seen several waves of feminism and women trying to, to reclaim and, uh, and, and be more visible and, and escape the traditional roles assigned to them. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge debate, but what, what I, I want to say is that despite these movements, we are still um, in a culture where solar consciousness dominates.
0: You know that makes a lot of sense to me because when you talk about the masculine or the feminine, we we see you know I mean it's okay for men to have more uh, effeminate characteristics today than it would have been two hundred years ago, let alone two thousand years ago or or longer. Um, But it's also okay. I mean, not just okay. We embrace it for women to have more masculine. I think of some of the you know, power women. Uh, mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher is a case in point. Well, we have now yeah. ourselves a, a vice president-elect that's a, a, mm-hmm. a woman. And, and, and we typically think of those roles as being masculine in their nature. So if I could infer from you perhaps this, this myth, this changing myth, has actually coincided with some of the changes, particularly in the last 100, 200 years. Would you agree mm. or disagree? Yeah, no, I think I would agree with that. All right, tell me about the astrology of the moonwalkers.
2: Yeah, that's 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 a fascinating subject for me anyways as uh, a as, as practicing astrologer. Um, the starting point of that is that six uh, six missions uh, went to the moon moon uh, from apollo 11 to apollo 17 and uh, the only uh, unsuccessful one was apollo 13. so that leaves six missions: 11 12 14 15 16 and 17 and two astronauts um, were, um, were on these missions and walked on the moon. So six times two is, is 12. And of course, for an astrologer, 12 immediately calls forth the uh, 12 signs of the zodiac. So I looked into the astrology of the moon walkers, and I thought it would be interesting if every sign was actually represented on the moon. That would be quite interesting. Otherwise, I thought that the fire signs uh, would be, uh, fire signs meaning, Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius would be the Mm. most represented because they are traditionally the signs of the conqueror, of the warrior, of the explorer. Um, So I looked into that, and actually to my surprise, what I realized was that the main main sign was Pisces, and Pisces is is a very elusive uh, sign. It's a watery sign, um, and it's a very spiritual sign and, and almost mystical sign. So I thought it was interesting that astronauts who go to the stars and have maybe this kind of aspiration. Um, when you are many astronauts have reported when they float in space or are in the in the capsule looking back at Earth, have this amazing feeling of peace. Um, and and Pisces is very sensitive to this it's a very idealistic sign. So I could relate that, and uh, I, I, I talk about it in the, in the book, how, to me, it, even though I was very surprised at first, to me it actually makes sense to associate Pisces with, with the uh, early astronauts and the, moon, and the moonwalkers. And um, actually several astronauts, especially the ones with uh, sun in Pisces, uh, reported almost spiritual experiences when they were walking on the moon.
0: It, it okay let's follow that up have you flesh it out a little more share with us some of the epiphanies the astronauts had in space what they saw and 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 why that's relevant to uh, the Pisces sign
2: well for instance um I would have to talk about especially for the listeners your listeners who are not familiar with astrology which which i understand is uh, is not everybody's cup of tea um but pisces as this is the last sign of the zodiac and it's very often said of pisces that they have one foot here on earth and one foot up there in the heavens it's a it's a sign that has very strong spiritual aspirations if you want to put it that way um, Now, when I looked at several of the uh, astronauts and how they reported uh, their experience up there, some of them uh, reported that walking on the moon, for instance, one of them could see God behind every rock. Uh, But the most famous epiphany is actually not from a Pisces sun astronaut, it's from Edgar Mitchell, who was aboard Apollo 14 and on his way back from the moon to the earth, he had uh, what he later described at a, as a Savakalpi Samadhi experience, which is really a, a, a sense of unity consciousness. And it was, it was for him a, a full-blown spiritual experience. And when he landed back on earth, uh, he created the Noetic Institute uh, in order to... Bridge the gap between science and spirituality, um, so that's that's the most famous experience. But several other astronauts have have reported also quite profound, uh, profound experiences.
0: Yeah, Edgar Mitchell's uh, Mitchell created, of course, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and they have done quite a bit of work in bridging reason and revelation. And uh, yeah most impressive work for that matter. We've had some other scientists in, for example, Dean Radin on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a life-changing experience. There's no doubt about that for uh, Mitchell. However, that said, more than one of our astronauts have come back and talked about aliens they've seen in space. You think that is... Apparition, or are there aliens in your view involved in all this?
2: Mm, you know, to be to be honest with you, I haven't really looked into into that. Um, to me, in a sense, I'm not so fascinated by aliens <clears throat> because I feel that human beings are are alien enough, uh, and and I'm not sure we need aliens at all. I think. We humans are fascinating enough not to have to look further away <laughs> to, to uh, you know, to find strange, strange, strange <laughs> beings. I think we are strange enough ourselves. So I, it's not a particular interest of mine, I have to confess. All
0: right, I got you. I had to sneak that one in anyway. Uh, listen, you say that the mission may be seen in a different light. Yeah. The union of sun, Apollo, and moon, giving birth to the divine child, Earth. Unpack that for me, please.
2: Yeah. Um, you talked at the beginning of the show, you said you, you want to know the message. Uh, and for me, the real message of the moon landing is is Earth. What we have found on the moon is Earth. And I try to put that in symbolic poetic slash poetic terms by saying... Yeah, one way to look at the moon landing is to say Apollo, the god of the sun is a conqueror and and steps on the moon as 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 a, a it's pure victory for solar consciousness. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is Apollo, the god of the sun goes to the moon and by going to the moon the sacred marriage, if we look, if we if we talk in alchemical terms, the sacred marriage between sun and moon takes place, and when the sacred marriage takes place, it gives birth to the divine child. And the way I look at it is, this divine child to me is Earth, because what happens is, by stepping out of Earth, men for the first time have been able to look back at Earth uh, from the outside and. Of course, this is symbolized or epitomized by this very iconic picture taken by Apollo 8 of Earthrise, rise, when for the first time we can see Earth floating in space in, in this incredible darkness of space, and we see this blue jewel uh, floating in space. And it has had, I think, a profound effect on our collective consciousness. And all this happens, of course, at the end of the 60s and alongside other developments where... Gaia, where the Earth becomes suddenly, uh, a, or a consciousness of Gaia of the Earth is 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 suddenly uh, rediscovered, if you want, uh, through different movements. Um, concretely, with the creation of Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth, but also through the Earth Mysteries movement or the Gaia theory of James Lovelock, or um, shamanism the, the the discovery of of what shamanism is about really uh nature spiritualities all sort of different eco-feminism all sort of different movements uh, are born were born around that time um and 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 for me this picture of uh, of earth taken by the astronauts on the moon or around the moon uh symbolizes perfectly this this change of con- consciousness so that's i try to express that um, through the Moon mission as well, saying maybe another way to look at this mission is to see it as the sacred marriage taking place and giving birth to a renewed vision of Earth.
0: Yeah, it's a, a very impressive. Uh, the photograph that was taken of the Earth from Apollo 8, uh, a friend of mine, Professor William Gillory, gave me a copy of that. Large frame, and and for all intent and purpose, it 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 spawned a hypothesis uh, that we know as the Gaia hypothesis. Uh, uh, Lovelock's uh, work, yeah, um, and that of course spawned the entire environmental movement, which yeah. we're all very concerned about today. So this was an incredibly turning point. Uh, Philip, your book I found to be absolutely uh, a great read. I want to thank you for your work. We're out of time thank now. You.
3: Thank I want you to thank
0: time. you for sharing your experiences and your perspective. And we wish you the best in the endeavors to come. All right. We're flat out of time, everyone. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.